Our image for this series is Daniel in the Lion's Den. This particular painting is by Henry Oswa Tanner, a man whose faith in God kept his life in control in a world that was sometimes out of his control. We're going to get to the story of the lions and Daniel in a few weeks, but it's a good picture of people trying to take control and who's actually in control. We live in a world that often feels out of control or as if others are taking control from us. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah lived in a world where Babylon has taken control, and yet these men are never out of control because they have faith in the one God who controls all. Let's read the beginning of the story of these four men in Daniel 1, 1 through 7. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ahiphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. We've just read seven verses of control being taken away. The first loss we see is the loss of power. Since the end of King Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel has been decreasing and losing political power. First, the nation is divided into two kingdoms, the northern tribes called Israel and the southern tribes called Judah. By the time we get to Daniel, the northern tribes of Israel have already been taken over by Babylon and deported all over the empire. Judah survived for a time by having an alliance with Egypt. God is not protecting them because Jehoiakim is not a righteous king. 2 Kings chapter 24 summarizes what happens. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, becomes a servant of Babylon for three years. Basically, Jehoiakim remains king, but Judah must pay tribute to Babylon. Jehoiakim is a vassal. After Jehoiakim dies, his son Jehoiachin becomes king, but only three months into his reign, Babylon comes back for Judah. Egypt is no longer helping Judah, and neither is the Lord. So the siege of Jerusalem is successful. Jehoiachin is taken captive along with nobles and articles from the temple, as described in 2 Kings 24 and Daniel 1. Nebuchadnezzar makes Jehoiachin's uncle his puppet king in Judah. Their loss of political power is a progression from being an independent nation to a divided nation, to a nation subject to a greater power, and then having their leaders deported and becoming a province of Babylon. 
And this loss of national power brings with it a loss of economic power. Israel is a small area of land, but it's at a crossroads for trade between the continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe. Whoever controls that land can tax anyone who passes through. Furthermore, even though we often think of the Middle East as desert land, that has not always been the case. When the 12 tribes entered the land, they described it as a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning that it was good for crops and good for animals. The Bible describes all types of trees and plants in that area. It's war that turned that land into a desert, which is also described in the Bible. We know from the modern work that's being done that this land can support agriculture because the modern state of Israel and some other Middle Eastern countries have begun programs for planting trees. And in doing this, the land is being restored to fruitfulness. Lastly, consider this. If ancient Israel had managed to hold on to all the land that God actually promised them in the covenant, Israel wouldn't be such a small geographical country today. But it would include parts or the holes of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Iraq, and Iran, which would mean Israel would control all those oil reserves. Crude oil wasn't an important commodity during the time of ancient Babylon, but it would have been useful for future economic power. They lost it all. They also lost religious power. Nebuchadnezzar uh, took some of the vessels from the house of God, the temple. He took them into the house or temple of his God, Marduk, and into that temple treasury. This is implying that the God of Israel is now subservient to the chief God of Babylon. The people who are deported, they can't go back to the temple for the sacred assemblies like Passover. Or they can't make sacrifices. And the first people that were deported were the young upper class, which would include priests and scribes. Even if someone remained in Judah or Jerusalem, within one generation there may not be a priest or Levite at the temple to lead a sacred assembly or offer a sacrifice or even teach the law. And it wouldn't matter anyway because Nebuchadnezzar would soon destroy the temple. Nebuchadnezzar took control of their political power, their economic power, and their religious power. But who had control of Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel 1-2 says it was the Lord who handed King Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. When I lose control, God is still in control. The 2016 presidential campaign was all about the feeling of taking control of power in the campaign strategy for Donald Trump. Make America Great Again was a way of saying, take back your power. Drain the swamp meant to take back my political power. That he was going to bring manufacturing back to the United States means take back my economic power. Promises to appoint conservative pro-life judges means to take back my religious moral power. Now, whether you or I voted for Trump or not, I think we can all at least understand the power of that message. Nobody wants to lose power. What we want to do is take control. So what should my response be when I feel a loss of political power? At the national level, neither political party nor candidate fully represents my values. The last political candidate I actually voted for 
was for a state office in California. Our local radio station had the three candidates, a Democrat, a Republican, and a Libertarian, come on and state what they would do if elected. The Democrat said, if elected, I will do A, B, and C. The Republican said, if elected, I will do X, Y, and Z. The Libertarian said, if you elect me, I will eliminate this government office because it doesn't need to exist. The majority of the work of this office is already done by other government agencies that have proper oversight. The little bit that remains can be done by such and such a department. On my first day of office, I will transfer those duties and eliminate my own job. <laughs> I voted for that lady. She knew how to shrink government. I don't usually have that good of a choice. And what should my response be when I lose economic power? Many people are hard up for jobs right now. The businesses that are doing great right now are internet retailers and nonprofits that give away food, such as Christian Cupboard and Merrick Food Shelf in our area. And what should be my response when my country has lost its Judeo-Christian ethics and morality? Well, what was our response and what is our future response when we lost and maybe will again lose our ability to worship as we did before? As Christians, do we fight against the loss of power? I'm not implying that we do nothing. Um, we'll see over the coming weeks that Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah were not passive people. They took control. They took control of themselves, and they began by trusting the Lord in their losses. We in Minnesota seem to run about three to four years behind California politically. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I would describe our leaders as ambivalent about churches restarting our corporate gatherings. They were interested in restarting businesses instead of religious practice. And it wasn't until they realized that we were going to resume some corporate religious practices that they actually stepped up and provided some guidelines. I don't necessarily think they hated churches. I just think they were ignorant or didn't care. In California, the picture that I see is that the government is actively hostile towards religious people. So there are some congregations in California such as John MacArthur's church, that are fighting that loss of power for you know, our freedom of religious practice. I don't think we're there yet in Minnesota, but we'll see in three years. The Israelites in Babylon had to learn how to worship in spirit and in truth, but without a temple, without a priesthood, and so they innovated. By the time we get to Jesus, there's again a temple and there's priests, but where do the people primarily worship? They worship in synagogues. Synagogues are not in the law of Moses. But without a temple or tabernacle or the physical instruments of worship, the people invented the small group led by a teacher, a rabbi instead of a priest. They innovated and it worked. And in Jesus' time, we don't read about the people worshiping Baal, Asherah, Molech, or any other gods anymore. From the time of Ezra, past the time of Jesus, the people do have a temple, but they continue to use the synagogues. And synagogue worship continues today. I didn't like the time that we couldn't use our building for worship, but I wonder if we had not been able to come back for corporate worship when we did, what 
other innovations might we have come up with? Perhaps more small groups to start with. Our small group in Matamidi, even though it is full of people at high risk for coronavirus, never stopped meeting because they weren't dependent on the building and they had less than 10 people, so they didn't have to worry about someone coming in they didn't know bringing in an infection. Worship services online and using virtual meeting spaces like Zoom, that's the bare minimum. I'm slowly working on putting our whole discipleship pathway, Living Stones, online. I don't know how it's all going to work, but maybe if I can at least get the process out there, someone else can get it and innovate with it. I mourn loss of power, but I trust the Lord in the loss. Getting back to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel 1, 3-5. The king ordered Ahiphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. This next loss is a loss of culture. Nebuchadnezzar took the young royalty and nobility into captivity. This means Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were people of the upper class, young people in Jerusalem, children of royalty, children of priests, children of the wealthy and the educated. They were the future leaders of their country, but conscripted to be made into the future leaders of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best, young men without any physical defect, ones that were good-looking, suitable for instruction, so teachable, wise, had insight because they were perceptive. Those are the people he wanted to serve in his palace. You know, Previously, they were going to build up their own culture. Now they must build someone else's culture. So they've not only lost their status, they've lost their future. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah also lost their families. Whole families were not moved into Babylon. Young people were removed from their families and put into re-education boarding schools. We know that's bad because we did the same destructive thing to American Indian children in the United States. And there are even more parallels with Indian boarding schools. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah were pushed into a new language. They were taught the Chaldean language. I think in ancient times, it was probably expected that a royal official would know multiple languages. So they didn't have to lose Hebrew, but they had better be fluent in the national language of Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah also lost their stories. Their stories are what we call the Old Testament, or the Jewish people might call the Tanakh, the covenant. The stories of creation, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The stories of the 12 tribes, deliverance from Egypt, Moses and the law, the judges, the kings, and the prophets. Now these men didn't forget their stories, but they also needed to learn about Gilgamesh and Enkidu, the birth of Marduk, Tiamat's horde, the Babylonian creation story, 
Anaya's journey to the underworld and learn the prayers of the gods of night. This is the true potential loss of religion. It's a mistake to place the loss of religion with the loss of power. Loss of religion is a loss of culture. It's our relationship with God and knowing God's stories of salvation that defines who we are as individuals and as a group. It's for those with a shallow faith that losing a temple or building causes a loss of religion. If I want to change someone's religion, I must change their stories. Stories about God and their stories about themselves. Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to get Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to lose their stories. These four young men also lost their food. We're going to go way deeper into the food part and religion next week. I'm even going to make some Babylonian stew for people who come to in-person worship to try. But to our point today, food is an important part of any culture, whether the food has a religious aspect to it or not. The idea is that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will no longer be Judeans, not Israelites, but culturally be Babylonians. In this loss, they have to trust the Lord because it was the Lord who handed King Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. I touch on this briefly, but one of the biggest mistakes we made in growing as a country and also Christian missionaries made in the past is assuming and forcing whole populations to completely give up their culture and embrace ours in order to be one of us. I do think that people that want to live in the United States should learn to speak the English language. But I don't think they never have to speak a different language. Our missionaries have learned over time that a people doesn't have to have Western European culture in order to join the culture of Christ. And it's better to translate the Bible into someone else's language than to force them to first learn English so that they can read my Bible. In order to come to Christ, I will probably have to release some of my stories. What I believe about myself and what my culture tells me is true may not align with what God says is true. However, those things in, and in my culture and in me, which are not contrary to Christ, will make me a unique follower of Christ. Some of the stoles I wear during the sacraments are made in Africa. White people generally don't wear that stuff, and that's okay. It's a non-essential cultural thing, and as long as the other clothing I'm wearing is respectful and modest <clears throat> and my heart is right, I don't think it matters that much to God. I don't think God cares if I pray in English, Greek, Spanish, French, Navajo, Hebrew, or Chaldean, as long as others can understand me if we are all praying together. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't abandon their culture in Babylon, but brought God's culture into Babylon. And in so doing, they earned the trust and respect of kings, they gained influence, and showed others the truth of God. So on the one hand, I want to be like the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, 
to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. What he's saying is I must engage my culture and I must engage the cultures of others for the sake of the gospel. And if someone tries to take my Christ culture away from me, I will trust God and act more like Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's Matthew 16, 24. And I think the Apostle Paul would affirm this in his own way in Philippians 8. Um, or excuse me, this is verse 8. I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. See, losing culture means nothing compared to gaining Christ. So I trust the Lord in any loss. The last thing Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah lose is their identity. Daniel 1, verses 6 and 7. Among them from the Judaites were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Michelle, and Abednego to Azariah. Before we ever had children... Jennifer and I discussed and considered names for our children. We wanted to agree on four names, two for girls and two for boys. We agreed on three. For boys, Daniel Jasper and Jonathan Jett. For girls, Sophia Amber, and we couldn't agree on the last one. And, of course, we had two daughters, and we had to figure out that second girl name. So Elizabeth Jade's name got a lot of thought and I think it fits her personality. However, for whatever reason, Elizabeth's favorite letter is the letter W. From the time she could first speak and we started the alphabet with her, she could recognize W. She loves W and wants a W in her name. W is for Elizabeth, she says. She loves her grandpa Wayne because he has a W. And maybe one day he'll give it to her. I've known several good families with that last name Wright, so I'm hoping maybe she'll marry into a family with a W instead of changing her name to Elizabeth. Names are important. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah all had their names changed. Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel's prince or Baal protects his life. Baal is another name for Marduk, the national god of Babylon, god of thunderstorms and the chief of their gods. Hananiah means God has favored or Yahweh has shown grace. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is the moon god of Babylon. Mishael means who is what God is or who is like God. His name was changed to Meshach. Meshach is the Babylonian equivalent to Michel, but instead of who is like God, it means who is like Aku, the moon god again. 
Azariah means Yahweh has helped. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nabu. Nabu is the Babylonian god of writing and vegetation. Both Baal and Nabu are referenced in Isaiah 46.1 as being less than the Lord God. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have had their names changed from identifying with the true God to these Babylonian gods. It's also likely that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah experienced a loss of sexual identity. More modern translations point out that they were put under the authority of the chief eunuch, which likely means they were also made into eunuchs. One of the supporting things of this idea that they were made into eunuchs is that there are no genealogies for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. Genealogies are important in the Bible. We also know that Daniel has a copy of the writings of Jeremiah the prophet. <clears throat> Here are Jeremiah's instructions to the people taken captive into Babylon from Jeremiah 29, 4-7. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. <clears throat> Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you thrive. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all do the last part, you know, pursuing the well-being of the city that the Lord deported them to praying to the Lord on its behalf, you know, they, they did that excellently. But we have no record of them having children. To have children and bring them up in the covenant relationship with God and teach them the law, that is part of the covenant that goes back to Moses. And yet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, devout men of faith in God, do not seem to do this. They've experienced a loss of power, and a loss of culture, but the loss of identity is the most personal. There's only one way to deal with this type of loss. I had better find my identity in something that is unchangeable and cannot be taken away. If I put my identity in my politics, that can change. If I put my identity in my economics, that can change. If I put my identity in my religious practice, that can change. If I put my identity in my social status, that can change. If I put my identity in my youth, good looks, and intelligence, that can change. If I put my identity in my future, that can change. If I put my identity in my culture, that can change. If I put my identity in my family, that can change. If I put my identity in my self-perception, that can change. If I put my identity in my sexuality, that can change. But if I put my identity in a God who is like no other, the God that is my judge, the God is that, that is my help, and the God who shows me grace, a God who never changes but is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then I can never lose my identity. Revelation 3.12 and 2.17 say the following. 
The one who conquers, I, Jesus, will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then 2.17. Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone is a new name inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. What he's saying is God knows who I am in him. I'm not living my life trying to figure out who I am. I know who I am. I'm a child of God and a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm just doing my best to learn how to express that until Jesus gives me that final expression of who I am when he returns. Individually and as a congregation and as a society, we've experienced much loss. Some of us have lost health and youth. You know, we've lost people in the years that I've been here. Some people have lost income. Some people have lost hope. Some people have lost courage. Trust the Lord in our loss. We look at all the things that Jesus willingly lost in Philippians 2, and it, where it instructs us to have the same attitude as Christ. It says, He who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus lost it all to give us everything, salvation. Trusting the Lord doesn't mean that we act like nothing is wrong, but that we work in confidence knowing that God is in control and doesn't change. Let's pray from Psalm 119. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instructions, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart to your decrees, and do not, and not to dishonest profit. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless, Give me life in your ways. Confirm what you said to your servant, for it produces reverence for you. Turn away the disgrace I dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. How I long for your precepts. Give me life through your righteousness. God, let us only look to you as the source of all we are and all we need. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. As you reflect on this message, think of one thing that resonated with you, one thing that challenged you, one thing that you want to learn more about, and one thing that you will do based on what you've heard. I'd like to leave you today with a benediction from Isaiah 58, 8-11, which says, May the Lord guide you always. May you be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. When you cry for help, 
May the Lord always say, here I am.